to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come to move in power. Lord, we know that you are here. Your word tells us that uh, your spirit is given in its fullness without withholding in its full measure. Lord, we know that you are fully here, that you don't show up in parts and pieces. When you cry out for more, it's not a deficiency on your end, it's a deficiency on our end. Lord, help us be more aware of you. Spirit of God, you who are fully here. And God, our hearts ache and long to experience you in a greater measure. Our hearts ache and long for your reality to become our reality, for your lens to become our lens, for the way you perceive things to become our perception. So God, we ask, even as we look to your word, even as we read scripture, God, let this be a life-transforming experience. Lord, we thank you that scripture is not just an archaic piece of literature, but it is living, it is breathing, it is speaking. So God, we ask, even as we look to your word, let your voice be so clearly heard in this place. Not my voice, not my eloquence, but your voice be so clearly heard. Quicken our ears to hear your voice, O oh Lord. We pray, speak to us, lead us, guide us, transform us by your grace, by your mercy, and by your kindness. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. <clears throat> really good. Well, um, how many of you have seen the movie Braveheart? Yeah. They shall take our daughters, but they will never take our... Freedom. <laughs> Come on, man, watch more movies. But I don't think that's a church thing. But anyway, um, well, uh, in his book, The Barbarian Way, uh, Owen McManus, which a pastor I really admire and love, uh, shares this story of... Uh, Robert the Bruce, who, uh, if you watch the movie Braveheart, he was the one that actually united the Scottish clans. And uh, Braveheart uh, is about you know, another guy, but it ends off with Robert the Bruce. And he shares his story in his book, The Barbarian Way. And it's like kind of historical, but also like myth and legend. But it's such a great story. And this story about Robert Bruce uh, goes like this. You know, he died in, ni- in 1329. Eh, 29. Come on, man, words. He died in 1329 at the age of 54. This is Robert Bruce. Shortly before his death, he requested that his heart be removed from his body and taken on crusade by a worthy knight. So catch this, right? He died at the age of 54 and he requested, take my heart out from my body and let a knight bring it to battle. Awesome. <laughs> PD, I'll so gladly do it for you, you know. <laughs> but... <laughs> a bit more of it. (laughs) Well, James Douglas, one of his closest friends, was at his bedside and took on that responsibility. The heart of Robert the Bruce was embalmed and placed in a small container that Douglas carried around his neck. In every battle that Douglas fought, he literally carried the heart of his king pressed against his chest. Now, in an ill-fated battle, Douglas found himself surrounded and in this situation, Death was both certain and imminent. And in that moment, Douglas reached for the heart strapped around his neck, flung the heart into the enemy's midst, and cried out, Fight for the heart of your king! 
And one historian quoted Douglas as shouting, forward, brave heart. And Douglas will follow his king's heart or die. And to this day, the motto of the Douglas clan, to which the present duke belongs to, is even to this day simply forward. Forward, brave heart. Forward, follow the heart of your king. Now, it's great to hear stories of passion from the past. But is this sort of devotion, wholeheartedness available to us today? In a world like ours, is it possible to give yourself so fully to a cause that you would risk your very life for it? Is it possible to throw your heart so completely into anything, even your relationship with Is it possible? Is abandonment, wholeheartedness, passionate devotion still available to us today? Is it a myth? Is it a legend? Is it something that the saints of all experience that is only restricted to them? Or is it something that's available to us today? At the core of my being, I long to live a life of passionate devotion. And I believe you do so too, right? Encourage me here. Yes. Yet that faint glimmer of passion is often overwhelmed by the burdens and responsibilities of life. Passion seems like a luxury reserved for the young. It's a youth ministry thing. But I believe the promise of Scripture is that we will experience life in all its fullness, not just when we're young, but in our later days, we'll experience that abounding life. And that life is not just something that uh, is it's contained in the inside and you show up to church with like a solemn attitude and it's like, yes, I have the joy of the Lord. It's deep, 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 deep inside. Inside. You cannot see any. It's inside. Passion, inside. You know, but I believe that passion looks like exuberance. It looks like a life of wholehearted abandonment. That is the life that we are called to live. My message today is titled, A Year in Review. A Year in Review. And we do this message uh, every year. We've done so for the last three years. Now this message, uh, the title, uh, it comes from a thing that comes up on social media or if you take right-hailing apps. I'm a great Grab supporter. Uh, yeah, they send me like a gift basket every, every year for the amount of Grab that I take. No, they don't. <laughs> but but uh, I wish they did. I wish they did. But they're Christian and I... Yeah, hallelujah. But anyway, uh, a year in review. And so... Uh, I, I believe it still happens that right? at the end of every year, Facebook sends you like a bunch of stats on like how many people you like, how many people like you, uh, you know, how insecure you are, and, uh, and, and all the good stuff. Uh, this morning, I was so encouraged. Now, I get my weekly report from my iPhone. How many of you own an iPhone? Yeah, God's people. Uh, and so I get a weekly report on my discipleship from iPhone, and so it uh, sends me a report, and today, I'm so happy, I'm so happy when I saw it, I, my week's usage last week was down by 19%, 19%, and so, yeah, man, I am an advocate for digital freedom from the slavery that is your iPhone, and so, you know, I highly advocate for some time off your devices, but yeah, 19%, yeah, Andre, leading by example, and all that good stuff, but yeah, a year in review, a year in review. Now, this teaching isn't part of my usual style. You'll find out in a while. You know, usually my style is like, yeah, backdrop of the cultural moment and then quotes, 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 Dallas Willard, Dallas Willard, and then like exposition, you know, and then like humor and all that good stuff. But uh, today is going to be slightly different, you know. I'm just going to, uh, you know, share some thoughts regarding scripture. 
you know, every year um, around this time, I read three sets of scripture that, have, that the Lord has spoken to me through, um, through the entirety of my Christian walk. And these three passages, uh, they might not mean much to you, but they mean the world to me. The Lord has used these passages to uh, bring about certain questions, uh, certain points of evaluation, self-assessment in my life. It's been so helpful uh, in my discipleship. And I'm just going to share uh, these scriptures uh, plainly, uh, share some thoughts, and uh, we're going to end the service with a time of reflection where we just ponder uh, on the year that we've lived and uh, even frame our resolutions for the year to come. Sounds good? Yes, Zhong Wei will be back on the piano. So multi-talented, play piano, play guitar, marrying into a good family, and all the good stuff. Hey, in the Tan clan, we don't lose, we gain. But, uh, <laughs> inside joke, inside joke. But anyway, <laughs> he's marrying my sister, but uh, yeah, okay. Anyway, a year in review, a year in review. Uh, share you some history. Uh, how many of you love history? Yeah. History, history. In the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Constantine, after a prolonged period of Christian persecution, made the imperial endorsement of Christianity and decreed it to be Rome's religion. The persecution of Christians stopped, and droves of people professed themselves to be Christians in response to the emperor's decree. However, the brand of Christianity that soon followed paled in comparison to the Christian faith that the early disciples lived and modeled. To the Romans... Religion was simply the rituals that you do, the gods that you erected a shrine for, who you prayed or worshipped to, and for the most part, there was virtually no ethical demand. None whatsoever. When it comes to religion, no reorientation of life whatsoever. Religion was simply an add-on to life. It was an add-on to life. And all of a sudden, the nature of Christianity or the Christian faith shifted. To be a Christian was previously an immensely difficult thing. It involved reorienting your life to follow Jesus. It involved tremendous sacrifice, persecution that we cannot imagine. But all of a sudden, because of the emperor's decree, Christianity became easy, accessible, and to some degree, nominal. And that day was the day we saw the birth of what we commonly refer to today as nominal Christianity, which I define as being a Christian by name, but being without its nature. A status symbol rather than submission to the ways of God. Interestingly enough, right around the time we saw a decline of an authentic expression of Christianity that has for the most part become the accepted norm, a group of Christians observing the pervasive the perverseness of culture, observing how the Christian faith has declined uh, in its intrinsic meaning, how we have lost some of the fundamental core values, these group of people then retreated and withdrew. They sold everything, all their possessions, devoted themselves to a life of simplicity and retreated and withdrew to the desert to pray, to reevaluate, to withdraw, to realign. And when they were in the desert, they gave themselves to scriptures, community, meditation, silence, solitude, charity, basically devoting themselves once again to the practices of Christianity, just like the early disciples did in the book of Acts. Now, these people were known as the Desert Fathers, or some of, our, some of you would know them as the founders of what we know as the monastic movement. Here's a quote about the Desert Fathers. Uh, that's my quote up. 
the fathers of the church were not afraid to go out into the desert because they had a richness in their hearts. But we with richness all around us are afraid because the desert is in our hearts. Just a great, life-giving, uplifting quote to start off the message. How are you all doing? Welcome to church. Now, the point here, okay, what I'm advocating for, hear me in saying this, I feel like I need to say this. The point here is not for you to sell everything you have and go live in a cave somewhere, risk scripture all day, and like, come Lord Jesus, come. And just like, evade, just like, disconnect from culture, the sinfulness of the world, and just be in your own Christian bubble. And when the Lord comes, the Lord comes. You know, I don't think that's the point here. The uh, scripture is pretty uh, direct uh, and it's pretty clear that we are to be in the world, but not of it. We are to engage with culture. We are to be in culture, but not be subjected to culture. We are to live in culture in such a compelling way, with such a radical alternative. As Leslie Newbergen said, that we are to live in such a way that provokes questions to which the gospel is the answer. We are to live in such a compelling way with such a radical alternative. We are to live in culture, in but not off. The point here, okay, is to realize that there has to be points in our life where we retreat, realigned, and then are revived with a fresh kingdom purpose. And that's what we hope to do today. But there's also, uh, you know, we are following the example of the Desert Fathers. And out of that community, that Desert Father community, came forth writings and wisdom that have shaped our understanding of God, the church, globally. When the Christian faith, as God intended to be, veered off its course, God raised up a people to defy what was the accepted norm and pave the way for an authentic Christianity. And I think for us today, that is so relevant. That is exactly what our cultural climate is where Christianity or what it means to be Christian carries with it a broad range of perceptions, definitions, and commitment levels. In a first world city like ours, we are more in danger of embracing a nominal, subpar, shell of life that we delude ourselves into thinking is Christ's vision of life in all its fullness. That was well received. We are in danger, people, of living passionless, passionless, apathetic, self-centered lives. Or in the words of Ronald Roheiser, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. We are in danger here. Living in a first world city with all its comforts, access and excess. We're in danger of spiritual oblivion. Uh, recently, you know, we had a visitor come to church um, uh, and, you know, he uh, doesn't live uh, in a first world city. He lives uh, really in, in a persecuted part of the world. And uh, he joined our service, and um, I had some conversation with him after. And now, what he said, and what I'm about to share with you, he said it with, like, the most gentle of spirits, with, like, utmost kindness in his heart. Uh, but, you know, he lives in a persecuted part of the world. And you know, sitting in service, uh, being in worship, hearing the word, and I just asked him the usual same old question, like, how do you find church? How was the service for you? Uh, and then he said, um, I am honestly uh, not used to the level of disengagement I saw this morning. Now, this is a hard 
tough statement. And when I heard it, I was like, whoa, like, you know, and I was like, let me speak up for my community. Uh, but, you know, I, which I did, I did. Uh, but, but, uh, but, you know, I, I took a step back, I went back home, and, I, and that statement has, like, bugged me for the last, like, four weeks, you know, and, and so sit uh, in me, you know, and I've been praying and uh, even thinking through, like, what, uh, where that statement's coming from. Is there any validity and truth? Um, but all I have to say, I came to a realization that it's so easy for us, you know, with the converts that we experience uh, in this country, with our liberty to worship and freely, uh, worship freely like we do, with uh, the Bible on tap, you know, you can find it anywhere and everywhere. Uh, it's so easy for us to uh, come comfortable and disengage. I've learned that with comfort often comes complacency. With comfort often comes complacency. And you know, he lived in a part of the world where the gathering, okay, coming together, it was not a definite thing. Service could be cancelled any time. The government could have like a massive crackdown. Pastors could be imprisoned. And every time they gathered, they gathered with this like great expectation in their hearts of what God is going to do, but also with great remorse and sadness because they never know if they're going to get to do it again. But for all of us, you know, we are like, yeah, church is church. Um, and I love the, the comfort, I love the liberty that we have, I'm so grateful and thankful for it, but at the same time, I'm so aware, or I'm going to be increasingly more aware that it's so easy for me to be complacent as well. And the same goes for you. You good? The truth is, I, your pastor, Andre Tan, uh, may be part of the problem here. Uh, the Barna Research Report uh, has this to say about churches. It says this, uh, Churches today have responded to the identity pressures of our culture by offering young people a Jesus brand experience rather than facilitating a transformational experience to find their identity in the person and work of Jesus. The study noted that pastors have largely built churches around the goal of competing for your attention against the backdrop of constant distraction amidst the noise of the world. That may look like more self-serving initiatives and events, less emphasis on missional living, services that are built around entertainment and experience instead of formation and mission. But we are not like that. <laughs> not really. Let's have a moment to consider. A um, couple other quotes. Uh, Carl Truman says this, when church is just one or more product to buy or leave on the shelf, then marketing, not theology, becomes the driving forces in her life. Um, someone who lived a bit uh, uh, more in the past than Carl Truman, he says this, uh, Charles Spurgeon, the very church which the world likes best is sure to be that which God abhors. Thank you, Charles Spurgeon, for that encouraging note. <laughs> Uh, recently, Barna did a study among 18 to 29 year olds who grew up in church and categorized the respondents into four categories. Can I show up my slide? Uh, these are the four categories prodigals, nomads, <laughs> habitual churchgoers, and resilient disciples. Now, prodigals, uh, which make up 22% of uh, those polled, are individuals who do not currently identify as Christian despite having attended a Protestant or Catholic church or having considered themselves to be Christian as a child or teen. Nomads are people who identify as Christian. They call themselves Christian, but have not attended church in the past six months and are just going around different churches. Uh, habitual church goers, which make up 38%, the largest uh, percentage, are uh, people who describe themselves as Christians and who attend church 
yet do not meet foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with being an intentional engaged disciple. Now, 10%, which is the lowest uh, piece of the pie, uh, are resilient disciples. These are 10% of the people poor. Uh, they describe them as such. Christ followers who, one, attend church at least monthly and engage with their church more than just attending worship services. Two, trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. Three, are committed to Jesus personally and affirm he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin, death. And four, this is the last one, express desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. This is what they describe as resilient disciples. Now, where would you categorize yourself? Where would you categorize yourself? Is resilient discipleship, but more than that, is passionate devotion, abandonment, wholehearted living into the ways of Jesus still possible in our day and age? One such story of passion is that of missionary Dr. Nathan Barlow. I read this story every year. It's one of my favorite stories. Nathan Barlow was a medical doctor who chose to utilize his skills in Ethiopia for more than 60 years. Nathan dedicated his life to helping people with mossy food. Mossy food was a debilitating condition primarily found in rural districts on people who work in soil of volcanic origin. It is basically tantamount to being, cut, being a leper. Once Nathan got a toothache. He got a toothache while he was on the field. And the pain of which was so intense that he had to fly away from the mission field to get medical attention. Nathan then told his dentist, that he didn't ever want to leave the mission field for the sake of his teeth again. So he had his dentist pull out all his teeth and gave him false ones so he wouldn't slow down God's work in Ethiopia. This amazing man was the first to help those outcasts and he spent his life doing it. Yet he died quietly without a lot of attention. No one really knew about him. That is passion. That is wholehearted living. Which brings us to the question, what does it mean to truly live an authentic Christian life? And that question isn't one that we come to with our own conclusions or what we think is possible, commendable, and sufficient. But a definition that we adopt from the teachings of Jesus and Scripture, hear me in saying this, in its entirety. We are so used to the luxury of nitpicking and picking aspects of scripture that we find easy to adopt and adhere to. But Jesus, in his teaching of scripture, doesn't give us that option. Perhaps you will entertain this idea with me that what we often think is radical is in fact nominal in Jesus' kingdom. It's in fact normal. What we've elevated to radical, to reckless living, to something that is above and beyond what ought to be, perhaps that to which we've elevated as a lifestyle restricted for some, is the very life that all of us are called to live with, live into in Jesus' kingdom. Just thought. We must have an internal conviction and resolve that our lives are to be raised to the standards of Scripture and not the standards of Scripture lowered to what we think is possible or practical. How can we know if we are really hitting the mark, if we are really living into that life, or, actually, or even uh, making steps into that? Now, ultimately, God is the judge, but 
um, what I'm about to share with you, the scriptures, the questions that I'm about to bring to you have uh, been really helpful for me in reevaluating my year, in charting uh, the course for the next. And I hope that this will be helpful to you. And um, you know what they've really done for me is they, they've helped determine whether the thoughts in my head, the longings in my heart, and the routines in my life actually match the profession of my lips. I talk about Jesus being my Lord often. But in many ways, the thoughts in my head, the longings of my heart, the routines of my life don't really reflect His Lordship in my life. I'll be honest with you. And I would love for you to take a moment today to reevaluate, ponder whether Jesus' kingdom is first and foremost manifest in your life before we even talk about His kingdom being manifest in the world around us. Sounds good? Thank you for the great enthusiastic response. Let's look at uh, the first. Sarcasm is my love language, so I love you all very much. Um, let's look at the first passage of scripture from Second uh, Samuel chapter 6. Now, this is a familiar one. I'm just going to read through the scriptures really quickly because these are all really familiar stories. I'm going to share a couple of thoughts and we're going to come to a couple of questions. Sound good? Very cool. Now, Second Samuel chapter 6. Familiar story. It says this, The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Now, uh, we all know that the Ark of the, Ark of the Lord or the Ark of Covenant is symbolic of the presence of God. Now, there is a direct correlation between the presence of God and sacrifice all through Scripture. Whenever the presence of God was, sacrifice became an almost instinctive and natural response. Where sacrifice was laid, the fire of God came down and consumed the sacrifice. In Jesus' economy, there is no vain sacrifice. Sacrifice. So it's in response to the presence, fire always falls on sacrifice. Now, something of a divine exchange happens. When we observe the life of Solomon in the Bible, we see that he made countless compromises in his reign. These compromises eventually led to the gradual demise of Israel. Now, scholars would note that uh, the, because of the compromises that Solomon made during his reign, it took Israel some 500 years to recover from all the idolatry that Solomon brought into the land. If compromise is the language of regression, then sacrifice is the language of progression. We are no strangers to the term sacrifice. We talk about it often. We sang about it just now. But sacrifice for most of us looks like the big, grandiose gesture, the huge check, the massive career change, the giving up your life. It looks big and grand, and we often see it as being exclusive to a certain personality type. But what I love about this passage of David is that he did not sacrifice all the bull, all the oxen, all the stuff in one sitting. Every six steps he took, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, which says to me that sacrifice is not to be predominantly viewed as one massive event, but is to be viewed as something that is continuous, consistent, and progressive. Are you with me, people? 
Now it will mean one of two things. It means that I don't need to do the big grand thing in order to have it qualify as a sacrifice, though the Lord may demand that you do at some point in your life. I believe all of us would have a point in our lives where the Lord will lead us to doing so. But my favorite definition of sacrifice is this. It is a step beyond convenience. Step beyond convenience. If sacrifice is a step beyond convenience, then the way this plays out is that if I keep sacrificing the same way over and over and over again, if I keep doing it through the years, the nature of what is about to, what will happen is that yesterday's sacrifice, that which took a lot of effort, if I do it progressively over time, if I train myself to do that sort of sacrifice well, it becomes easy, it becomes natural, and what took a lot of effort yesterday becomes easy, natural, and convenient today. Yesterday's sacrifice often becomes today's convenience, which means to say that sacrifice is to be progressive. You may have sacrificed a ton as a young person and have continued doing so as an, all the way up to your adulthood. But perhaps today it's a time to revisit that which you term as sacrifice. Maybe that sacrifice isn't sacrifice anymore because it's easy, it's natural, you have the means to do it. Maybe 50 bucks as a youth was a lot of money. But now that you are making money, now that you have a career, 50 bucks, I put it to you, it's not as sacrificial as you think it is. Are you with me? Yeah. <clears throat> sacrifice may again seem big and mysterious, but it could be as simple as making time for things most important, taking the step of faith to use our gift for the sake of others, doing what doesn't come naturally to us. Uh, Amy and I, you can hold us accountable to this, but we're really, really making efforts to get to know our neighbors, and our plan is to invite them over for Christmas. Now, I am an introvert par excellence. And so, talking to people, uh, you know, I often tell people when I meet them for the first time, I'm terrible with first impressions. I promise I'll be back better next time. And so, I'm just not the most eloquent or the most make people feel comfortable and at ease kind of guy, but I can cook. How many of you have tasted my cooking? You have tasted and seen? Yeah, yeah, brother. So, you know, this is all... The first prophetic word I received uh, in my life uh, said that I would be a Proverbs 31 woman and uh, I would have a cooking ministry. I, I'm not kidding you. No, I, I, I uh, wrote into a website of a prophet. Uh, he said, pay him 25 bucks, uh, give him your name and your email address and send you a prophetic word. And so I got a word the next day after spending 25 bucks and it, the word started off with, my dear sister. <laughs> The Lord has called you to be a prophet, 31 woman. You will have a cooking ministry. And so, uh, as, you can, as you can tell, I'm still a man. Uh, but I have a cooking ministry. And so we know in part, therefore we prophesy in part. And so, hey. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. <laughs> but yeah, first prophetic word. Um, okay, let's, let's come back. Serious mode. Uh, the first question I'd like to bring you to is this. Uh, First question, do I live a life of convenience or do I sacrifice? Simple question, do I live a life of convenience, that which the most part is natural, easy, non-demanding, or do I sacrifice? Our next passage of scripture I'd like to bring you to is Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 14. Uh, one of my favorite passages in, in the Bible says this, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. He removed the foreign altars and high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah posts. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. He removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah. And the kingdom was at peace 
under him. We're going to revisit that word shortly. He built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. So they built and prospered. Now the background was this. Asa was the great-grandson of Solomon. Solomon, when he was in rule, opened doors to all kinds of idol worship because of all the foreign wives he was taking in, 500 years of regression. Asa did what was right in the eyes of God. He reformed the land. It says this in that passage of scripture that we just read. No one was at war with him. God gave him peace. The land was at peace. Now that word would loosely translate to shalom, wholeness, completeness, without adversary, no enemy. No one was against him. No one was at war with him. Yet, in that last line we read, they built and prosper. They built and prosper. In a time of peace, in a time of progress, in a time when everything was good, when they were experiencing wealth, progress as a nation, a great time in history, they built walls and then they prospered. They were in a good place. And the walls they built, they fortified the city to defend it, to defend it. Here's the thing. The walls were built to protect what was valuable within the walls. Structure in your life is committed to, is erected to protect that which you deem is valuable. I know the level of value you have for something by the structure you place around it to protect it. Make making sense. In many ways, we are like the city that holds value. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. The very Spirit of God lives within us by which we experience and know Him. And the question for us today is, how valuable is that? How valuable is that to you? What do you place in terms of structure that communicates value in your life to protect that which you deem as valuable? Is this something worth fighting and protecting or is this just an afterthought? Structure to me looks like your values, principles, and beliefs translated into a practical commitment. Uh, Benny Hinn, now we might have mixed feelings about Benny Hinn, but his book on the Holy Spirit, number one on my list. Number one, most impactful book. Uh, you know, in one of his books, we read that Benny made a commitment to always respond to the Holy Spirit calling whenever he felt the presence of God, the summons of the Spirit, he would retreat and withdraw to spend time with the Spirit of God. Uh, the story goes that he was at a dinner, a really prominent, prominent dinner with a lot of prominent figures, and then he felt the Spirit was calling. He stood up, went back to his hotel room, and spent time with the Spirit of God. Uh, structure. Billy Graham would never travel alone in ministry uh, because he so valued purity and integrity of his heart and his actions, and so he would never travel alone. Um, structure. Walls and structure. Practical commitments that are set up to protect that which is valuable. And hear me in saying this, structure commi communicates value. Structure communicates value. If something is of, valuable, is, is of value to you, then you will have corresponding structures to relate to it. Question for us today is this, do I have structure in my life that communicates my value for God? What are some practical commitments that you have given yourself to that communicates your love and value for God? Right, are you ready? Last passage of scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Man, time flew by so quickly. Such a short time today. We are doing this in a brisk 15 minutes. Not the usual 110. But anyway, 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, there's a chunk that we, we can cover, but I'm just going to hop around uh, the chapter 
here and there, but you get the main gist of the story. Now, in 1st chapter, chapter 15, it says this, Samuel said to Saul, I'm the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Malachites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Donkey! First Samuel chapter 15. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instruction. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ear? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. We have all heard this verse, you know, quoted a bunch of times in church. Obedience is far greater than sacrifice. And the indictment against Saul was this, that his presumption, the indictment was against his presumption that his sacrifice, though massive, though well thought out, could somehow compensate for a life of disobedience. We are mistaken when we think extreme acts of sacrifice, giving, committing to different initiatives, could somehow compensate for small disobedience. There is no substitute for obeying God. Matthew 23, uh, this is a, a real sobering passage of Scripture. It says this uh, in the words of Jesus, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! That's the word, PD, hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the most important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And often when I read passages like this, you know, I never think of myself as the bad guy. You know, in like David and Goliath, I'm always David, never Goliath. Prodigal story, you know, I'm never the prodigal, I'm always the father. Kind of thing, Mary Martha, I'm always Mary. How many of you think that way? Just me? My dysfunction? Okay. In this case, when I read this passage, I'm never the Pharisee. But as I was rereading it, it hit me so hard that this is so relevant in our lives. We could be sitting here faithful in Sunday attendance, in serving, being life group, serve diligently, feed the poor, nice and polite. But we may entertain that little closet habitual sin. And we're mistaken if we think that amassing acts of sacrifice can somehow compensate for disobedience. I think before the year end, we have to deal with that elephant in the room. Are you sinning? Have you willingly violated aspects of God's laws and commands? And if so, you need to stop now. You need to stop now. There's not to be delayed or eventually weaned off. The consequences are far too great for this to be trifled with. We as a church has never advocated for fear-based teaching. You know, we've never done that kind of style. You know, we're like, chill. But this is something to not be chill about. Because it bears with it so great an eternal consequence. It's not something to be trifled with. No matter what your theological persuasion is, it is clear as day. Sin bears with it a consequence. 
Why trifle with something that bears with it so great and eternal consequences? It's not something that we can just casually ignore. Great acts of sacrifice do not compensate for small disobedience. And I'll close soon. Last year, we heard the story of John Chow, 26-year-old missionary who was killed, reaching one of the last unreached people groups, the Santanese people, a tribe of about 150, who live on an island somewhere off the coast of India. On November 16, before his second attempt and final visit, John penned a letter to his parents, asking them to not be angry at the people or God if he were to die. He advised them to live their life in obedience and that he would see them again when, in his words, they pass through the veil. He says this, This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe are at hand and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God worshipping in their own language. I love you all and I pray none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. Now, to the world, and most news agencies will report that what he did was utter foolishness. It's pure stupidity. Why would you do something like that? But, if you take what he did and you put it in the context of eternity, all of a sudden, it makes sense. It makes complete sense. Hear me in saying this. As Christians, as people who who profess to be Christ's followers, there will be moments in time in your life that you will do things, say things, commit to things, say no to things that seem like it's utter foolishness and stupidity to all around you. You will invite persecution, naysayers, dismissive opinions about some decisions that you make in life. Seem like utter foolishness. But you take that sacrifice, obedience, structure that seem inconvenient. You take all of that and you put it in the context of eternity, life with God, reward, seeing face to face for all eternity. You take all of that and you put it in the context of eternity. All of a sudden, everything makes sense. Everything makes sense. Then, obedience is no longer a requirement, but the delight and joy of our hearts. David Livingstone, I love this quote, he says this, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered sacrifice? Last question I'd like to bring to you is this, do I obey God promptly in every area of my life? In just a few months, we're going to close off with a time of reflection even as we ponder through these questions. But before that, I do have one final quote for you. We started off this message with the story of Robert the Bruce and the great story about the heart. Throw it into the enemies. Follow the heart of the king. John Tyson, one of my favorite authors and teachers, in reflecting on the story of Robert the Bruce, writes this. Near the end of Jesus' life, when he knew that his death was approaching, he pulled his disciples close and issued a call. He wanted his heart to be taken on request by followers who would imitate his passion. And this call extends to us. We can embalm the heart of our king and carry it close to our own hearts, making the love of Christ a kind of relic, something to be remembered but never imitated. Or we can venture far from the shores of complacency into the furious love of God and his mission in the world. The church now faces a moment when much seems to be lost, it is a moment that leads some to harden into self-protection, hesitancy, and complacency. 
Will we have the courage to see what others cannot? That this moment demands our unreserved devotion to Christ. Throw your heart into the darkness, then follow the heart of your king. Forward. Forward, brave heart. Forward. Before we go forward and spend a year diving into this concept of becoming a missional community, we're going to participate in a sacred rhythm, even as we close off the year soon, that Jesus himself participated in, that of work and rest, going forward and retreating, loving well and withdrawing. And just as the Desert Fathers did, we're going to take a moment, withdraw, reevaluate, pray, realign, so that our hearts will be renewed, revised with a fresh sense of kingdom purpose.